Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Podcast. Today our guest is Tom Baxter, mushroom cultivator and manager of Bristol Fungarium. So up ahead we got a good talk about uh, medicinal mushrooms and how you can implement them into your daily life. Um, the video version is actually on YouTube, so if you're like looking at your phone when you're driving, <laughs> just kidding, please do not do that. Do not condone that at all. In fact, I was on the bus the other day and I looked out the window and the first three drivers that I saw, all three drivers were on their phone. Absolute disgusting behaviour. Weren't even watching the podcast, wasn't even being productive. Despicable. Anyway, if you want to buy any of the medicinal mushrooms in Bristol Fungarium, you can go to the link in the description, and um, the affiliate link for this video is George20, so that's G-E-O-R-G-E-2-0, no caps, no spaces. Right, let's cut to the chase, uh, enjoy. So, there's a new TV show out, it's called The Last of Us, and it's massively into cordyceps, and it's getting a lot of people interested. So, um, so yeah, what actually, what actually are cordyceps, and what should people be worried about? Are they concerned about you know infecting humans or uh, what? Uh, what should they be scared about or fascinated about? Uh, yeah, I mean the, the cordyceps is uh, the most recent uh, sort of clade or family within um, the mushroom kingdom. So it came around about three hundred million years ago. Uh, there's about seven hundred uh, different types of cordyceps. The they're actually called ortho uh, cordycepin. I know ortho cordyceps. Um, uh, there's absolutely nothing to worry about from a human's perspective. Um, they only, I mean, they are, what's interesting about them, they are parasitical, so they parasitize upon various different things, insects, grubs, uh, other mushrooms. Um, so yeah, there's like, there's no, no ability for a cordyceps to, in, in, in any way, get control of a mammal <laughs> um, so uh yeah we actually grow more cordyceps than any other company in europe uh so we grow cordyceps militaris um one of which actually is a clone of what well, a clone across of one that we found in, in cornwall um so yeah cordyceps is quite an interesting one because it's um the i mean originally cordyceps has been used for probably over a thousand years in uh, traditional chinese medicine uh, what happened was the um, yak herders sort of on the Tibetan plateau noticed the uh, yaks eating these little brown mushrooms uh, that grow up a bit like, um, well, a bit like little stalks. And then they noticed they got very, very, very enthusiastic for the ladies and um, started shagging everything that was, you know, within their distance. And although it isn't actually rutting season, at that point of the year, they started behaving like it was rutting season. And so that was when humans started eating them. And actually the um, wild cordyceps uh, sinensis uh, sells for more per gram than gold currently. Um, it's been heavily over, uh, yeah, over, you know, collected forage, whatever the word is, which has obviously cut the, uh, cut the supply of it down and pushed the price up. So we grow uh, cordyceps militaris, and the um, we're lucky in that we've had quite we have quite a few uh, professional rugby players that take our product. Uh, it's very good at increasing VSO max and down regulating inflammation in the brain, amongst various other things. Um, so and yeah, the the um, ex chief nutritionist for uh, Great Britain Rugby League uh, has recommended us to quite a few guys. So actually, I think probably the team that 
there's probably over 20 professional rugby league players and six professional rugby union players that are now taking our product. Um, and interestingly, the team that is top of the Super League at the moment, Catalan Dragons, a French team, uh, are, there's more of them taking our, our cordyceps than any other team in the Super League. So uh, who knows? But yeah, there's absolutely no plausible way that cordyceps could uh, in any shape or form take over a homo sapien sapien or any mammal for that case yeah no that's really interesting so um i did a bit of reading and how like um it was in chinese medicine and it was like yang invigorating and uh yin nourishing or something like that and that actually transfers and over the scientific literature there's a lot of like um support on this and one thing I saw was the fact that it causes vasodilation, that like opens up the um, your blood vessels. And the the benefit that has is is a lot because when you hit muscle failure at the gym, you know um, that's just because your muscles are overheating. So if you can sort of um, regulate your body temperature through stuff like vasodilation, it means you can do way more in sport. So um, yeah, obviously as someone that does sport and obviously like you know the people in rugby um, taking it, it has a massive benefit. So. Um, yeah, no, I really do endorse that. But, there, um, there are a lot of other athletes to take it. I mean, the, the reason that cordyceps originally became um, sort of relatively well-known in the West was the, uh, I think it was the 96 Olympics, uh, when a lot of Chinese athletes did ridiculously well in quite a few different um, disciplines. And they were all on cordyceps. I mean, they were probably all on juice as well but they were all on cordyceps and you know the norwegian winter olympic team have taken cordyceps in the past decade they do it's really good for endurance stuff but basically it increases your um body's capacity for uh carrying oxygen uh in essence and your muscles ability due to that dilation to get more oxygen into the muscles um which obviously means that you can push more power if you're that way inclined uh, but for the rugby guys, what's really interesting is its ability to downregulate inflammation on the brain. Um, and that's as useful as actually the, uh, the sort of stimulation it gives. Um, I, I mean, it's also known as Himalayan Viagra. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been given as an aphrodisiac for both men and women, actually, for a very long period of time. And I think, to be honest, cordyceps is probably going to be the um the family of mushrooms that we hear a lot more of from a, a, a human health perspective because of the 600 known different types of cordyceps only, there's only really two that are used from a human health perspective because uh you know just the research hasn't been done china is so far ahead of us in terms of their ability to um do the science fundamentally uh so yeah, so I mean, I think cordyceps is going to be the one. We grow around about 100 kilos a month of um, cordyceps, um, which has taken us quite a while because they're, you know, in, in the wild, the cordyceps militaris, uh, they parasitize on um, the ghost moth fungus, which grows, you know, under the ground. Um, and... Uh, that one, you know, we can't, you can't actually cultivate that one um, without using that. We haven't been able to work out how without using that, um, that host. And so the one that we all, that everyone grows is cordyceps militaris, 
again the chinese came up with a way of commercially cultivating it uh based on a rice substrate about 20 years ago um and so that's really what's caused the big boom in people being able to take uh cordyceps nice nice so um how do you actually cultivate them because it's quite an interesting thing if it parasitizes on them um you know is there a substrate is there you know a, a host of choice more complicated we basically make a broth mix and it's got 17 different things in so we use stuff like spirulina various different peptides peptones um seaweed I mean, there are lots of different broth recipes you're trying to basically in essence create the same um sort of chemical composition and proteins as are available in you know the um caterpillar or the grub that it's growing from and um, obviously because we're vegan you're having to do that without using any animal products um egg whites if we weren't a vegan oriented company we could use egg whites which has a pretty good um you know mix of proteins in it for them to parasitize off so you have to sterilize the grain make a huge amount of liquid sub uh, liquid mycelium um and then you inject that into the tubs that you're um that you're growing it on and it takes around about I don't know, three months. Um, the mushrooms are very small, so uh, you know you need to grow a lot of these very small mushrooms in order for them to be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I actually went to Costa Rica uh, beginning of the year, and I actually saw a cordyceps mushroom infected ant. It was a huge ant, absolutely massive, and it was underneath a leaf. And I don't know how someone saw it, but it just had branches of um, you know, the, the mushroom coming out, and it was the most fascinating thing. And um. Yeah, that, that, that was shocking. So how long after the ant, you know, just in nature, how long after, it doesn't have to be the ant, but just the host is infected, how long is it from infection to um, the mushroom growing sort of thing? Uh, well, it, I mean, it can be up to five years, depending on the life cycle of uh, what the host is. So the, um, yeah, they can carry spores around for, yeah, up to five years. And then, you know, when they... Um, yeah, when the the host then turns into a butterfly or whatever, then it can or whatever it turns into. Um, yeah, then the mushroom can be. So I mean, they can they can sit around and wait for ages. The spores, it's slightly quicker. It depends, you know, it just depends entirely on what type of cordyceps it is. Some of them are much quicker. Uh, you know, there's the classic ones that everyone's seen in like uh, fantastic fungi uh, with the leaf cutter out it's going up to the top i mean it is amazing especially if you see some of the cicadas who you know they look like there's no body or head or anything and they're still you know wandering around with these empty skeletons of um you know cicadas or cockroaches as well as some of the parasitizing cockroaches and it's amazing just seeing these hollowed out insects wandering around for no apparent reason with a little mushroom out the top of their head um so yeah i mean that, that's why cordyceps are you know mushrooms first popped up around about 1.2 million years ago and there have been various different stages in the evolution of mushrooms uh, and the final stage about 150 million years ago uh, that's when we saw parasitic fungi um, cordyceps start you know coming into the sort of evolutionary tree yeah but that's absolutely mad and uh you know, just yeah, just seeing the process in person and understanding how it works, at least with some species. And Fantastic Fungi was a very good documentary. I think it definitely, uh, you know, showed how crazy that specific fungus is. 
But um, what well, I was well, thinking... This is actually going to be an extern uh couple of weeks. Hey, what are you, sorry? He's going to be an Exeter. Oh, wait, Paul Stamets? Yeah, he's going to be an Exeter in, like, I think on the, on the 18th, I think. 18th and 19th. Well, I'll look out for that. Cause, uh, the uni. What, are the Exeter campus? Yeah, it's, there's, like, a um, big conference there that we're a part of called uh, Breaking Convention. And he's, he's giving a talk there. A lot right. of, a lot of, uh, you know, people are giving talks there as well who are probably a bit more sort of um, scientifically educated than Paul. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, he'll be there if you want to see him. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, you know, essays are due soon, so I'll definitely look an eye out for it, keep an eye out for it and uh, have a look. I think... Yeah, what's what's so good about I guess like Paul Stamets and many other scientific communicators is kind of um, it's easy to sort of bridge the gap between the public and scientific literature. I start reading mycology literature and it just blows my head off. It, it just it is, but yeah, is very um, wordy some of it. And as someone now got a degree in it, it's um, yeah, it even still it's quite hard. So having some educators like himself and uh, it really is quite cool to yeah, have I mean, the public interested. You know, says a lot of things that are not true. But like what? Well, so many things he says. Oh, are true. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, there's so many things he says that are not true. Um, so a lot of yeah, there's just so much. I think anyone in anyone in the sort of uh, any mycologist you talk to, or anyone who's actually doing real research with mushrooms, um, get a bit frustrated by the sort of grossly exaggerated claims that man perpetually makes um but you know he's been very good at popularizing mushrooms and making a lot of people get interested in mushrooms um and if you ever read any of his patent applications then uh you know they're extraordinary i don't know if you've read many scientific patent applications but um, the ones done by paul are unique fair uh, enough yeah <laughs> The patent application as vague and fluffy and um you know like a brain dump like someone's literally dumped all their thoughts onto a patent application patent applications are normally very legal tight defined uh things and pools are the, the, the opposite of that. fair enough yeah that's um give them a read later on i think give but um what so what is the mushroom extraction process because i'll try to watch some youtube videos of how they do it and it's quite like laboratory how it's done so how yeah can you run us through how it's done on labs i mean fundamentally what we do is we grow the mushrooms to start with this is also very different to what paul stamets does with his product which is another sort of bone of contention with a lot of people so what we do is we grow the mushrooms the fruiting bodies um such as well i've got Oh. See, I've got there's a turkey tail one I've just picked. I don't know if you can see that one, is it? Oh, yeah, turkey tail. So, we'll pick the mushrooms, whichever one it is, uh, and we'll dry them at 40 degrees in the infrared dehydrator. Uh, then we'll powder them up to create as much surface area as possible, and then we'll cook them initially in uh, 100 liters of water at 65 degrees 
for 24 hours. Um, the some of the compounds in mushrooms, such as beta glucones, uh, they're long chain polysaccharides. Um, they above sort of 65 degrees, they uh, get destroyed, and um, that's the reason we sort of cook at that temperature for the longest period of time. So then we extract from the mushroom into about yeah, 100 litres of water, and then we cook under pressure at 15 psi. Um, the same, uh, the same dried mushrooms in, um, yeah, about 115, uh, about 122 degrees for 40 litres, for about four hours in 40 litres. We combine the 100 litres of water with the other 40 litres of water. We then evaporate that off at 65 degrees down to 3.8 litres. And then we do uh, a 97% ethanol extraction using something called a soxlet, which is a bit of glassware. Uh, chemistry sort of stuff where you basically evaporate off the ethanol goes into the big tube which holds the dry um, mushrooms percolates down through it and then when the chamber fills up it gets to a certain level and it recycles and then what we do is we take 1.2 liters of the ethanol extraction combine that with 3.8 liters of water extraction and that's our final product um, there are other ways of doing it which I won't go into in other detail, but, but I think what's interesting is, for example, Paul Stamets, he doesn't do any of that. Um, what he does is he grows mycelium on rice. So he doesn't even grow mushrooms. He just grows the mycelium uh, on a substrate of rice or oats sometimes. Um, and then he dries that and powders it and puts it into a capsule and sells it um much easier way of doing it uh, and i would love to do that myself because instead of having to wait whatever it may be three to six months for the mushrooms uh i could get that done in three weeks and i can make a lot more money unfortunately there's very little scientific evidence to back up that there's anything like the same quantity of compounds of interest in myceliated rice than there is in the actual fruiting body um but it's a very good way of making money very good way yeah sounds it i mean it sounds like i said earlier like laboratory sort of style is it something you can do at home it sounds like a spin-off of breaking yeah. bad well, yeah. you, can do, you can do this what's kind of attractive about mycology mycology is sort of the last of the natural sciences um but you can do it at home you know there's still thousands of fungi out there in the uk there's about twelve thousand fungi we've identified and there's probably in reality probably about well more than fifty thousand. um so there's loads that people can find and isolate and you can't you could do all this stuff at home you just wouldn't make necessarily such a strong one um because the issue is getting like 97 percent ethanol is quite expensive you know it's 25 liters is uh one and a half grand uh that we pay every week for our ethanol um and but you could do it in vodka or lower lower alcohol stuff and you don't have to use a soxlet you could use something else I and mean, we've got a lab but that's mainly for you know doing other stuff uh, in terms of you know strain selection and genetic type stuff um but yeah we work with ue as well so we work with the neuroscience department at ue and we, we co-sponsor a phd student who's working on stem cells uh particularly specifically we're looking at uh, compounds within our lion's vein and how they operate on um, it's not actually stem cells it's early stage cancer cells um, 
anyway, so we're, we're the only people in the UK, maybe even in Europe, I'm not sure, but certainly in the UK who are doing um, any sort of clinical research on the compounds within these mushrooms. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that, where that goes over the next couple of years. Yeah, there's a lot of popularity towards mycology now. There's a lot of media kind of showing it. And I think, like Abby mentioned in the beginning, the whole Last of Us mentioned like the, the wacky side of mycology, even though it's fantasy. But um, but yeah, talking about lion's mane, I tried growing lion's mane in summer, but um, it didn't go too well. It actually had some, it was like orange. It was, it was hanging over. Some of it was developed, some of it wasn't. And it had, it had like orange stuff at the bottom. I ended up binning it because I thought that, that can't be good. But um. Yeah, what actually is that stuff? And yeah, how, how was a good way of doing it? Because I had it in a garage and I got some sunlight, I guess, but um, it had a plastic bag over it, humidified it every day, a couple of sprays, um, cardboard box. But yeah, it turned orange and I was very concerned because none of the photos were orange. <laughs> you know, I thought, what well done? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite often when it goes orange, it's just, it's got too hot. So were you growing it in the summer, were you? Yeah, yeah. And it's like most mushrooms prefer like 16 degrees there or thereabouts. Lion's mane is actually quite, you know, tolerant to different temperatures. But if it all went orange, then, yeah, it was probably got too hot. But it would have been fine. You know, it's just it's secondary metabolites that are just creating that orange look to it. But yeah, I mean, lion's mane is a pretty easy one to grow. Lion's mane and oysters are the two easiest ones. Um, to grow and lion's mane has got had a huge amount of money thrown behind the marketing of it recently and the lion's mane actually that we grow here which is slightly different we are slightly different to most other companies in this regard um a lot of the mushrooms we grow are ones that i found in the wild and that we've cloned in the lab uh so our maitake our turkey tail our reishi our uh any oysters we grow and our lion's mane, they're all UK native strains and they're all actually very close to where we are outside Bristol. And so we've started supplying um, RHS Wisley with some of our strains and they're repopulating Wisley, which is sort of apart from uh, Kew, it's sort of the second best sort of horticultural um, garden in the UK. And we're also working with Natural England, looking at a couple of uh, projects using certain brown rock fungi um and the effect that they have on in, in birth, specific invertebrate numbers within a woodland setting to see if we can use uh introduce certain types of um fungi into sort of immature woodland to increase biodiversity so that's another project we're involved with at the moment yeah that, yeah very interesting stuff and uh yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to actually read more into this. I think, um, you know, I've had a good time because what you're saying is really exciting stuff. And uh, especially of lion's mane. The reason why I grew lion's mane in the first place is because of neurogenesis. That was the, that's the main, I can imagine when he said marketed mushroom, that's the one that was, you know, wow, that is almost ne like necessary. It almost kind of felt. Yeah, also no actual evidence that that does happen. Really? Really, there's none. Um, because there's even like there is no evidence that any of these compounds can even cross the blood-brain barrier. There's only a couple of very small studies that have been done in Japan, looking at people with early onset dementia, um, and 
Yeah, they improved their sort of uh, scores on international cognition tests by about 14% over 12 months, uh, to over 12 weeks, sorry. Um, so it's statistically significant, but um, we don't understand what's going on there because you know, people talk a lot about a couple of uh, compounds called heronaceans and aeronaceans, um, and there's about six different heronaceans and even more different aeronaceans. And these are tiny compounds, uh, so they have a very low molecular weight. So it posited that because of that, they should be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and create what people like to say is that they create a precursor to an enzyme called NGF, nerve growth factor, but that's actual bollocks. All the compounds you need to create nerve growth, growth factor are already in abundance on the other side of the blood-brain barrier. Something does seem to be happening. We're not entirely certain what, but this is why science and this is why us you know working with actual neuroscientists life is always a lot more complicated um so people want to sell products so they're telling everyone take this mushroom it'll sort your brain out and everyone at the moment is thinking that um yeah it's thinking that the problems are in our brains uh, whereas what's going on in some society in a greater sense is actually and within our bodies is actually causing a lot of problems that are manifesting themselves in our heads and so people like the idea that you can take a little pill or a little bit of lion's mane sort out your head and everything else will be great but quite often the issues are either in the society outside you or within your body and you're feeling those as you know issues that exist in your mind and so if someone offers you a little blue pill to take to sort your mind out a lot of people think everything will be great. So, yeah. I mean, having said that, a lot of people that take our products do claim it helps with their brains. So, you know, good for them. But uh, that's why we're spending £50,000 on a PhD student out of our own pocket over the next three years to actually understand, try and understand what's actually going on. Right, yeah. So uh, I can imagine you would not recommend doing boxing, getting your head punched in, and then taking the little pill and going, "Oh, I'm all better now." So yeah, may maybe we'll leave that one out. Always recommend boxing. I think anything that gets aggression out and um, boxing is yeah, boxing is a beautiful sport. So um, it's not necessarily particularly great for your head, but uh, you know, I think I think boxing, anything physical, is yeah. one. So, um, yeah, and I'm fully in favour of boxing. I just don't think you can fix your head by um, by taking a pill. Yeah, no, I, I fully endorse boxing as well, any sort of martial art, really. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, to the assumption that, oh, it doesn't matter the damage now, I can just go home, take some lion's mane, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that'll be it. I mean, unfortunately, like I've lost uh, my closest friend to something called motor neurone disease, and... Um, yeah, he was a very good rugby player, played for Exeter and Bath and various other people. Um, and that's definitely repressive hits on the brain. And so, you know, from my perspective, I'd love to be able to, you know, do some research because the, the, the interestingly with lion's mane, certainly around the myelin sheath, the myelin sheath covers all your nerves within your body. Um, and there is some evidence that lion's mane does seem to radically increase the reparation of the myelin sheath so when people damage their nerves there's there is definitely there is definitely evidence of that it's true uh, and people quite often because that there is a decent body of evidence for that people then 
say that it should be able to do the same within the neurons in the brain, which requires these compounds to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And they might be able to cross the blood-brain barrier, but at the moment we have no proof that they cross the blood-brain barrier. But we do have evidence that lion's mane is very good for uh, repairing myelin sheath. So lion's mane is definitely good for certain things. It's just the things that it's definitely good for are not the things that people are buying it for. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of like ethical concerns yeah, getting live people to do these brain studies. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah, I need to look more into the methodology of it, but I can imagine there's a lot of restrictions within the scientific literature. I can imagine that annoying a lot of people that want to get the real science, the real benefits. I don't know, like, you know, doing brain scans and stuff, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I know a few people in the sort of psychedelic research side where they are using, you know, brain scans and stuff to try and demonstrate, but we still don't know, you know, if whatever it may be, the hypothalamus, you know, lights up when you take whatever it might be. Um, you know, we actually don't know what that is actually doing to the brain. You know, we can't see a picture on a brain scan and think, oh, that person is thinking, you know, I can fly or whatever it may be. Um, so, it's, you know, although we can scan brains, that doesn't actually tell us 100% what's going on um, in terms of, you know, the thoughts of the person. Um, and I'm not sure if taking lion's mane, you'd be able to see from a neuronal perspective what's actually going on, which is why we're doing these studies on these early stage cancer cells, because you can actually see uh, changes in behavior based on what compounds you get them exposure to on the, um, yeah, on the Petri dish. Yeah. So with like lion's mane, I guess when it comes to, yeah, the sort of neuron benefits and the yeah, science behind it um, and the restrictions towards it, I think the thing I'll be interested to know maybe down the line is kind of, what would it be best for? Because I know with boxing, it's a constant pitter-patter, pitter-patter to your head. But with things like MMA, it's kind of, um, you know, you can get knocked out and that'll be it. So it, but I can imagine with like elbows and knees allowed, it being a larger impact. So um, obviously, as you can tell, my knowledge on it is very restricted. But yeah. uh, if you want to sort out inflammation on the brain, you want to take either cordyceps or ratio. They have far more... Um, actual scientific literature for uh, down-regulating inflammation. So reishi is particularly good for down-regulating cytokine release. The cytokines are like the signaling enzyme in your immune system. When your immune system isn't really functioning very well, um, so you get an infection, your body sends cytokines down to that site, and then it should inform the sympathetic nervous system to send down T cells, NK killer cells, different parts of your white blood cells. Uh, but when it's not working very well, your body just sends more and more and more cytokines down. And so that's why people with like um, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, knee, hip, ankle issues, that's why so many of them, when they take reishi, find that it like really helps because it does downregulate cytokines. And obviously during COVID, a lot of people were dying. Um, when their body basically started attacking its immune system, which was what was called a cytokine storm. Um, and so, so yeah, if you want to downregulate inflammation in the body, you wouldn't take lion's mane. You'd take either. Right, yeah. So what sort of negative effects does inflammation have? You mentioned inflammation in the brain a few times and in the body in general. So what, what sort of issues does inflammation, especially in the brain, um, have on humans, both short-term and long-term? 
it's kind of, it's kind of turning more of like a doctor medical sort of uh, you know podcast a bit. <laughs> it's drifted away from mycology. I'm not medically trained in any shape or form, but I mean, I think we all know what happens when you get inflammation, wherever it may be. It's painful, and it stops the uh, regular flow of whatever it may be around the body. If that's in your knee, um, you know, it becomes very painful because everything's inflamed. So lots of ligaments and tin- tendons that would normally be separated are now pushing in against things. It's limiting blood flow. You know, it's limiting blood flow. And, you know, it's just a Complete. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, it, it, the, the body is not functioning as efficiently as it was before, and it becomes painful. Um, and yeah, that's what happens with. Yeah, don't want that. Yeah, simply said. Knee, your hip, or your brain. Um, inflammation's similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think because uh, I heard there's like there's no actual nerves on your brain, but yeah, I mean inflammation anywhere you don't want that, especially your brain. You kind of need that a little bit, then. Well, there's no there's no nerves because the nerves in your brain are neurons. Got yeah. So there's lots of nerves, but they're neurons. They're exactly the same type of cell, um, but they're neurons rather than nerve cells. But they're almost identical in terms of their molecular structure. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. Be there, they can't feel. That's that's baffling. Oh, that's why there's no nerve cells because there's only neurons. Got you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's yeah, very strange hearing the stories of people, you know, um, getting like brain surgery, kind of top of the head open, fully awake. So, um, you know, it's kind of weird, yeah. Same, same molecular structure, and then yeah, you can't, can't feel. Interesting, like things in the old scientific um literature about when people used to do lobotomies and uh you know, the impact on um personalities they used to cut out the cut the severance between severed like basically the connection between the left and right hemispheres of the brain and so yeah there's lots of very bizarre stories about what goes on when you start playing around with um well stopping communication between parts of the brain or taking out specific parts of the brain and how how humans then um land up behaving in very odd ways yeah yeah the, the brain is something that's always fascinated me and uh yeah it, yeah i think i want to read more about it especially you know the medicinal mushroom sides and the effects it has and the fact that we don't even know a lot about that i thought we did i thought we knew you know the core basics of it but just by um listening to what you got to say like who is like uh Hooverman does a good podcast on the brain but he's yeah there's there's some good guys doing some good research but you know, I think when it comes to medicinal mushrooms, the people that are, well, actually, to be honest, the so far ahead in so many things now, the Chinese are so far ahead, like so far ahead, it's, it's ridiculous. We actually um, get someone to translate two um, scientific papers from Mandarin into English every month, um, just because that's where the research is. Um, I mean, the Chinese are miles ahead of us in the vast majority of things. So. Yeah, no, I, I fully see that. I think um, I looked into um, your shiitake and mataki mushrooms, and they're like Japanese mushrooms. They're named in Japan. But um, yeah, I went to the shops, went to Asda, and I saw shiitake mushrooms there. And I thought that's, you know, I felt quite strange seeing medicinal mushrooms or what is perceived to be medicinal just in the shop. Yeah, I I mean, cool. mushrooms to a degree are medicinal anyway. Um, you know, they're 
it's just that they've been studied more. I mean, even Agaricus phosphorus, the um, button mushroom, the white button mushroom, because, you know, but the white button mushroom and the uh, chestnut mushroom, the portobello mushroom are all the same mushroom. They're all Agaricus phosphorus. Uh, the chestnut mushroom just gets grown in light and the portobello mushroom is just a very large chestnut mushroom. So, um, but they have health benefits. Um, although Paul Samets would lead you to believe that they also give you cancer. That was one of his wonderful comments on the Joe Rogan podcast that he refused to talk about it anymore. But I, think I did, did see that. They, they did give you cancer. Um, you know, people have been eating butter mushrooms for a very long period of time. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's any actual real evidence that they give you cancer. Uh, but you know, who's, who's to doubt the man? So, uh, but they are very good for, um, there's an interesting guy called Fred Gillum, who's a microbiologist and also mycologist. And, uh, he has found for people who, who are gluten intolerant, if they eat three or four button, raw button mushrooms before they eat bread, that creates a certain, um, mix of enzymatic activity, which means that you can then eat bread afterwards without having any um any uh issues with your gluten intolerance so there is some really interesting stuff you can do with all sorts of mushrooms but shiitake are actually you know they're they're grown they're, they're endemic to asia so they grow in china um japan and uh yeah maitake as well i mean maitake grows in the uk my just means dancing there's a little, lovely little story about um how when they first because at a certain period of time in the 17th century in japan if you found a maitake mushroom you could go to your local shogun who was basically like your sort of, the sort of local lord and you could exchange uh your weight of your maitake mushroom for silver because it was so you know revered but the japan the japanese have a very interesting sort of cultural association with um the natural world and seasons and this sort of thing. So there's obviously Matsutake, which is uh, pretty much the most expensive sort of edible uh, mushroom. And there's a really good um, book written by a mycologist called The Mushroom at the End of the World, uh, which is all about looking at the Matsutake um, sort of culture and harvest. And um, yeah, so I mean, the Japanese, are, yeah. And she in Japanese just means wood mushroom. So shiitake, take is mushroom. It just means wood mushroom. Maitake means dancing mushroom because they were so happy when they found them in the woods, apparently. Um, and they used to, yeah, I mean, there's so much folklore associated with um, fungi all over the world, really. And I think what happened in the UK is we, um, probably with the advent of Christianity, uh, when it sort of turned up, you know, whatever it was with Gregory and then Theodore later in um, sort of sixth century. Uh, but originally in the sort of second century of the Irish uh, monks. Um, and I think when you believe that, you know, you can get rid of all your ills and problems by, you know, repenting to the one true God, you sort of lose the need to understand any sort of uh, knowledge of, you know, indigenous plants or fungi from a health perspective. And so in the UK, I think that's why we're quite fungi-phobic, because Christianity sort of a belief in one all-powerful, Deity means that you don't need to have any knowledge of, you know, the plants or the mushrooms around you to cure you. If you can just 
repent and be forgiven and made well again. Because whereas in Europe and other countries, you know, there's a much, much, much closer relationship between the people still and, you know, plants and fungi and native medicine, which has been lost in the UK for some reason. Yeah. In fact, talking about Christianity and mushrooms, uh, maybe you've heard the uh, Amanita muscaria mushroom, the uh, fly agaric, the typical, you know, uh, toadstool mushroom. There's, there's a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, quite a controversial book, considering it's a bunch of, um, you know, literacist, you know, English people uh, debating between it, if it's uh, true or not. But it's um, it's focusing on whether Christianity or originated from this Amanita muscaria mushroom. Have you heard about that? No, but I, I, the one thing I do know a bit about is the history of religions, because that's what I studied and what I continue to read a lot about. And um, I, and I know a bit about mushrooms as well. And interestingly, I, I've never heard of this one. I mean, I do know, you know, the reality with the um, Sami shaman and Amanita muscaria and how that plays into various... Um, you know, stories to do with Saint, uh, Saint Nicholas in Germany and Santa, who's become a Santa Claus. But, and that, that, I think, is probably true. But I don't know about this latest one about Jesus. <laughs> Let's hear about this one about Jesus. Then. Yeah, so I think it was the guy who translated the Dead Sea Scrolls. I could be completely wrong here. So um, don't, don't quote me, you know, if uh, your mushroom mates down the line. <laughs> I think uh, there's the guy who translated the Dead Sea Scrolls said that Christianity, the origin of it was misinterpreted. And actually it was kind of God allowed it to rain. And then once it rained, the Amanita muscaria mushroom grew. And then that allowed them to see or perceive God. And there was a load of cults around that sort of era about, um, you know, cults around these mushrooms. And I don't know, it seems far-fetched just hearing it. Uh, I've skimmed through the book. Yeah. But, yeah. The points I'd make is that um, Amanita muscaria is, is a mycorrhizal fungi. So um, that means it has to have relationships with certain types of tree. Uh, and it tends to also have um, a mycorrhizal rela relationship with uh, the Boletus family of mushrooms. Um, so those are things like porcini and uh, Recepta Bordeaux. Uh, or Penny Bun, they're called in the one of them is called in the UK. So the types of trees and the climate in what was Judea in the, around the time of Herod, probably weren't a huge number of forests that would have had the right climate for many Amanita muscaria to grow. I don't actually know if Amanita muscaria do actually grow in that part of the world anyway, but quite a lot of the Amanitas are more, uh, like for example, I've, I've heard someone posit something about uh, Amanita Pantera um, being used by um, various tribes in Southern Africa. The panther cap, it's like a sort of cousin to Amanita muscaria. I mean, it can be poisonous if you know you don't get rid of the acid uh, before you take it. But that, that mushroom simply doesn't grow in Africa. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's bullshit. Um, but there is a mushroom, however, that does grow in the desert. Uh, which is a type of um, truffle that does actually have psychedelic, um, where well, it has psilocybin in it or psilocin, uh, which does grow in that part of the world. 
So maybe that's what they were talking about. I, because that I've heard that before that there is because there is this type of truffle that does grow, and people have posited that maybe that's manna from heaven. And I've I've heard of that, but I've never heard anyone say anything about Amanita muscaria from that part of the world. Yeah, even when I first heard it, it did seem a bit far fetched. Obviously, you know, well, never say never sort of thing. Maybe, maybe, but uh... Amanita muscaria. Have you? Oh, well, sorry. You ever taken Amanita muscaria? I have not. No. Uh, it's quite a heavy trip. It's not. It's not one that's likely to make you uh, believe in God. <laughs> it's sort of. You become sort of, it's very dark and you don't move very much. It actually, you sort of become rig and water sized. Uh, it's not a particularly pleasant experience. Um, so it's very different to, you know, cubensis or other types of sort of you know, magic mushrooms that have, because the the compound in Amanita muscari is muscamol. What's it called? Muscamol. Um, whereas obviously in other mushrooms, it's either psilocin or um, what's the one that, that they synthesize to make um, ergon, the one that they synthesize to make LSD from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, on so many levels, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Sorry. In fact, talking about the ergot fungus, actually, it was, uh, I heard something else. It's probably, you know, who knows? But um, it was the witch trials. It was actually because the ergot fungus infected wheat and they were eating the wheat. And then they kind of just thought some people were witches and that's how the witch trials started. Well, I mean, there's, again, you know, that's a little bit more pragmatic uh, reasons for that. So in just about, uh, I think about 15% of the uh, women, at least in Salem, who were um, burned to the stake, and she came from Jersey, which is where half of my family come from. And in Jersey, for, before the before everyone, you know, went to Plymouth and got the boats over to America, um, they they'd be quite a strict form of Protestantism, uh, very similar to what a lot of the founding fathers were. And women for about sixty years had been banned from uh, singing or dancing, and so the girls used to meet up at night and go into the woods so they could sing and dance. You know, we all know that you know, girls love singing and dancing. Boys like singing and dancing as well. Not quite as much as girls, but <laughs> they do. But boys are allowed to sing at church, the girls were. And so, um, yeah, and so what happened is, uh, you know, they went to the States. It was still this very strict form of um, sort of Lutheran, Lutheranism. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they were going off at night and meeting up and singing and dancing and there, there is some you know there's some things in terms of the um oh, i forget which herb it is now um oh which herb is it oh, oh i forget which one it is but they used to put on their boomsticks uh and so you know potentially it's quite stimulating for them if they put this particular herb on their broomstick but i mean the one story that is probably true to do with sort of folklore and Hallucinogens is probably the Amanita muscaria with um, Santa Claus. Because the Sami people, um, who are the sort of uh, northern sort of um, reindeer herders, so in the sort of Targa in Siberia and Finland and places like that, that they use Amanita muscaria a lot in their medicine. And Amanita muscaria is undeniably good for back pain, like sci sciatica and stuff like that. 
Um, so used topically, Amanita muscaria tincture can be very useful from a health perspective. Um, but the Sami, it was this, the, the shaman of the Sami who were like the medicine people. They would quite often um, take Amanita muscaria to sort of uh, connect with the, um, you know, the ancestors and stuff and to get knowledge. But what they would do is they would um, obviously be pulled by reindeer and the, the way of getting into the Sami tent is to climb up and go down the pole in the middle, just like Santa Claus. And so, you know, the fact that Santa Claus, you know, is supposed to come down your, uh, your, um, your chimney, which is what the Sami medicine men would have done. And he had a sleigh, you know, which flew in the air, towed by reindeer, which is what the Sami, you know, medicine men did have. I think that's probably a reasonable, and obviously St. Nicholas was, you know, the sort of northern Germanic um, patron saint, and they do border, you know, Finland and Norway and Lapland and all that sort of stuff. So I think there is probably, there is probably some level of truth to the, um, the sort of myth of Santa Claus coming actually from, you know, Amity, Sammy, uh, shaman taking Amity to Muscaria. That, that seems totally plausible. The other ones that you mentioned, not very, not very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never, I've never quoted those ones too much. I think, uh, yeah, there is. Um, I guess with the Santa Claus one, there's a lot of breadcrumbs kind of going towards yeah. it. It seems like a lot of hints towards it. But uh, <laughs> there's guys coming down the middle of a house. <laughs> yeah, there's, and there's magic mushrooms. So yeah, all three of those seem to join up relatively, and they still do it to this day. That's the other thing. I mean, it's not like. Um, you know, you can still see these men doing exactly this, the same stuff that they did millennia ago. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think, uh, you know, now it's led to materialism, Black Friday, you know, buy a TV discount, you know, all, all of all started from the that, Amity and Muscaria mushrooms. That's the, uh, that's the way of uh, maximising return on, you know, on labor in a very short space of time and we are geared towards um you know maximizing profit irrespective of cost nowadays and unfortunately we're very easily led and with the amount of data that's now collected about us we're, we're not very unique we're not very special we're quite easy to you know sell yeah, to. yeah. <laughs> and so uh, yeah just go out and buy my tinctures I just need to spend some, some money on advertising. Of course, yeah. I think, because um, you mentioned the the truffle, the psychedelic truffle, that was potentially, you know, instead of the Amanita muscara mushroom. So, in that part of the world. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, truffles, they're also mycorrhizal, right? And uh, I heard that it was actually in Merlin Sheldrake's book, The um, Entangled Life, really good book. He He mentioned that the reason why pigs can smell it, I found out, is because of the... Um, androstenol hormone that's in it and that's why pigs can smell it because sows smell that for the for the males and that's what allows them to you know the pheromones to allow them to realize that they're in the area i think dogs can also smell it but i think they eat it so they just kind of stick at pigs yeah well pigs did pigs used to eat them as well you know that's why if you have a look at any of the old um you know pig truffle hunters back in sort of you know you go back couple of centuries into it they had these massive long uh metal like 
beaks that they put on their pigs to help them dig up the soil faster and to stop them from, from eating it. It looked proper medieval, the contraptions they used to put on their pigs. And there was actually this year, there was the first um, truffle truffle dog competition in uh, Sussex, the first one in the UK ever. Um, I was going to take my dog along, but she's very large and, you know, she's, she's lovely, but she's useless. So. Yeah. But yeah, so it's definitely making a resurgence. I mean, with um, the truffles that we get over here, which is sort of the black truffle, there is that, there's about four different truffles, but only sort of two of them are any good any good for eating. Um, is you need like uh, lime, like a calcified base. Uh, I don't I don't think we totally understand why that is, but there's a really big Institute uh, just outside Barcelona, who have Im they now impregnate a lot of the um, the roots of trees with uh, liquid mycelium from these particular type of either black or white um, truffles, and there there is some success in growing them there commercially. As long as you plant them into land that is on limestone or calcium, then it you know it does seem to work. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, very interesting stuff, and never had truffles. But all the psychedelic truffles, you know, as of yet. But um, yeah, we've mentioned. Well, no, they're different ones. There's a psychedelic truffle called Atlantis, um, which is really, really easy to grow. Um, it's not very strong. Um, but there's, yeah, I mean, in England, you just need to go to Wales in October uh, and you'll be fine. So um, it's, it'd be interesting. Though, I haven't really read a huge amount about what uh because the thing is the druids really our sort of link to this sort of plant knowledge and obviously they were there aren't any druids left anymore and any druids there are, are probably not that well versed in some of these things so yeah we've sort of lost our connection to that side there's uh, i mean fundamentally the thing with christianity was it was the marrying of the mythic of the jewish um desire for revelation with the um sort of greek and then later roman uh desire for logic and so those two things came together to create you know the new faith which was christianity i don't think it had anything to do with amanita muscaria um unfortunately yeah of course <laughs> it's quite interesting actually the fact that you've got a background in religion history and then now you're learning all this, you know, mushroom knowledge. And there's such a massive link between the two, even though some of it is, you know, false folk tales sort of thing. There's a clear link between the two. Yeah, but the thing is with um, with all knowledge, fundamentally, it comes from a desire to understand what's going on in the world around you. And um, you know, that's why we now have scientific knowledge. Uh, it changed, obviously type of science up to sort of the period of Darwin where we we're all going off and you know collecting data and it was all about that type of you know sort of um quantitative uh data and trying to like in Victorian times count the number of everything and try and create this whole sort of taxonomic reality and then fundamentally when maths came in and then physics um sort of the late 19th century maybe a bit earlier we started to to come up with you know being able to use maths to try and solve what had previously been the remit of philosophers um, and philosophers obviously previously had been viewed as the top scientists and now it's physicists and so it's sort of gone away and that's my thing why mycology is so 
attractive to a lot of people because it's the only real natural science left where you don't have to have that that um, sort of knowledge in maths or physics to really make um, some genuine advances. It's the whole, you know, the classic that everyone's got physics envy to a certain degree. Um, so we're in a, yeah, I think that's why, because it harks back to that earlier period where you didn't need maths or physics to make great strides and knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, religion has been created to try and, you know, give us certainty and allow us to part our ignorance somewhere where we can feel comfortable. Um, and that's where, you know, people used to use herbs and mushrooms to try and answer these questions. But yeah, not only that, but there's a massive hunger for knowledge around the world. Even for people that aren't scientists, there's a lot of scientific minds that are interested in learning this stuff. So when it comes to research, there's, I mean, as you talked about the lion's mane, there's so much more that needs to be learned that there's a, there's a clear hunger for this knowledge. And I think mycology is one of those things where... Yeah, but I think, I think the hunger for this knowledge comes because people want to believe uh, with lion's mane that the issues in their heads, and that if they can sort out their heads, everything else will follow. Um, unfortunately, life's a bit more complicated than that. But, you know, we live, we live uh, in an environment now where there is a deep need for connection um, because people are not feeling very connected. There's no sort of villages anymore. There's no, you know, sort of, there's no communal gathering places apart from nightclubs, pubs, but people don't even go to the pub as much as they used to. People, people I mean, nightclubs are always there and that's a bit of a renaissance now. Um, but yeah, there's a deep lust for connection. And uh, I think as everyone's become more atomized by modern technology, the thirst and need has just grown. Yeah, I saw that. I saw like a graph that said, you know, the release of the iPhone or smartphones. And as it kind of like got older and older, there's yeah less and less connection um, between humans. So there's definitely a, a need for that. Also, I think attention spans has collapsed. Oh, um, yeah. TikTok and all that. Yeah. Well, not just TikTok, but it's Facebook originally. Then it was Instagram. Now TikTok is like the, the most extreme example of just, you know, short term nothingness. Um, yeah, and it's kind of funny for me because I follow a lot of like the younger tech entrepreneurs all sort of in the e-commerce game. And um, yeah, they love TikTok. Love TikTok. It's very easy to spend money and get conversions on it. Um, so... Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of the ideal environment. It's like a sort of post post capitalist playground for people who to advertise stuff because uh, it's just it's remarkable how you know much madness there is on there. And and yeah, I mean it's amazing. I was shocked when we went on it a few weeks ago, and I was like, wow, this is even worse than Instagram. And um, yeah. Instagram's pretty bad. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Yeah, book. pure hyperstimulation by the looks of it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the amount of views you can get on that is insane. People getting like 150 million views from something they filmed on their smartphone. It, it's just mind-blowing, it is. It means absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah. But it does hit. Yeah, you could speak a lot about Jungian um, psychology and the impact that it has on. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, talking about, um, you know, psychology, the minds, I think we can drift into the, uh, the mental benefits of mushrooms. You've got psychedelic mushrooms and there's a lot of research on that. You've got Robin Carhart Harris 
and uh, you know a bit of pull damage as well. So um, yeah, the, the sort of benefits that that can have on uh, mental health and depression as well is some of the main studies. So um, you know, what, what's your thoughts on the studies at the moment that have been done mainly on like you know depression and other mental um, benefits that psychedelic mushrooms are seen to have? Yeah. Okay. Um... Robin's a very sweet guy. Um, he's now over in where is he now? John Hopkins, I think. Um, again, I'm slightly. I, I don't dispute that. Um, I don't think there's much argument anymore for profoundly depressed people. Uh, there can be value in um, taking psychedelics. Uh, I think the issue is that you do need to probably take them regularly. I'm slightly, well, not slightly, I'm very, I'm much more skeptical about um, some of the sort of ketamine analogues, because I know a few of the characters in this scene um, who have, uh, that's the best way to describe it. I mean, you know, they have done PhDs, but because someone's done a PhD doesn't mean you need to listen to them. Um, and I've sort of seen them socially on a few occasions as well. And um, yeah, I think, you know, again, I think we need to be careful. I think in terms of PTSD and depression, like really profound depression, um, they can kick you out of it to a certain degree. Um, but the reality is, you know, the environment they have to function in is exactly the same. They have to, you know, they, they cannot operate in a space of just being given left field um, stimuli, which makes them re-engage with the here and now. So, yeah, there's undoubtedly a role for uh, psychedelics for some people. There's, you need to be very careful at the moment. There's a huge amount of money in this space at the moment. Um, and we've experienced it with biotech companies coming to us, offering to fraction off some of our compounds. Uh, you know, it's like you've gone for hours and hours about this particular side. Anyway, I'm, I'm much more cynical, to cut a long story short. Um, I think for PTSD and for extreme um, depression, where like a lot of standard medication isn't working, uh, I think, yeah, potentially. And I think just for general humans, every, you know, year or every two years, having a big, you know, reality check through psychedelics is not actually a bad idea at all. Um, you know, making you realise that we're all fundamentally, you know, connected and we shouldn't be too arrogant uh, is a good thing. But the idea that oh, psychedelics offer some... Um, some sort of utopian future is bollocks. I mean, I, I grew up in the rave generation where, you know, you could go clubbing, there was lots of football hooligans there, you know, it was every, every strata of society, men who had, you know, bludgeoned other men, men who, you know, were gay, men, you know, it was just everyone was like together, but that was all because of drugs. It was all because of ecstasy, ecstasy popped up. We're all cuddling each other and like they're now using ecstasy, MDMA, you know, therapeutically. And I don't dispute any of this. 
you know, but the idea that we can create some utopian vision of society without actually fixing society just by people taking a pill. Uh, because if you look at, for example, that study at Imperial, pretty much all the guys that were on that documentary, if that's the one you're referring to, um, had quite profound short-term change. And I think only one of the 12 actually had a profound long-term change. And it was sort of heartbreaking seeing some of them, you know, just return to type after three months. And I think the issue is, you know, the issue is not entirely in our heads. Our society is pretty dysfunctional um, and we need to fix our society more than we need to fix our heads. You could argue that, you know, we need to fix our heads in order to fix our society. But So I think for profound um, issues like PTSD for soldiers or, or anyone who suffers from PTSD, profound depression, I think, yeah, there's potential applications. But you've got to bear in mind that if this does go through, it'll be the pharmaceutical companies who monopolize it. It'll be unbelievably expensive uh, and it's going to take years to happen. So, you know, I think this, we don't want to get too overexcited. There's, um, you know, we can go and walk up the Welsh mountains and pick kilos of magic mushrooms. And if the world was, this was going to radically alter the world, it would have happened, you know, <laughs> a long time ago because people have been taking these things for a long time. Uh, but I do think for people that are in a really bad place mentally, um, it's it's helpful. I think there's enough evidence. I mean, if you look at all the studies that were done in the 50s, especially with alcoholism, so with addiction, like I think there was like over 30,000 people in the 60s, in the 50s, who went through um, psychedelic, some type of psychedelic uh, experience, and it was the the reality with the alcoholism. It was something like 80 over 80 percent of the people who were alcoholics got off, you know, alcohol. So I mean, there is a huge amount of data from the 50s which shows it's really useful for addictions and potentially for um, people that have, have have suffered extreme trauma. Um, so that would be sort of PTSD type people now. But I don't think it's going to radically alter the state of our societies, which is what I think needs altering rapidly. Yeah, there's almost like an innate desire for humans to sort of experience always state of consciousness, you know, for alcohol as well, I'm guessing, yeah. Yeah, throughout history, I mean, Jesus, yeah. whirling dervishes. And the idea that you and you don't need psychedelics to do this, you can do this through chanting, you can do it through dance, you can do it through breathing, you can do, you know, there's so, you know, throughout, you look at any culture, there is the desire to, you know, get out of it <laughs> with a view to understanding the, the mythic and i think i think that's the the big thing that's lost from um sort of neoliberal sort of anglo-saxon um, capitalist economies there, there is no space for the mythic anymore because there's no real space for god um and so the mythic the sort of mysterious there isn't really a space for it and yet as humans we all have a need for you know there to be this space for myth or uncertainty and and I think that's what we're missing. We're missing that sort of slightly, you know, the thing that sort of appeals to our soul, uh, however you want to structure that. So, um, yeah, at the moment we live in quite a soulless society, probably the, the most soulless society ever, pretty much. 
that's quite a bleak way yeah, to put it. But uh, well, we do. Yeah, we're not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, well, you know, we don't. You know, it's not like we, we. There's nothing greater than ourselves that we celebrate. There's nothing. There's you know, there's nothing that we don't believe we can understand. There's no space left for the mysterious or the mythic. And and so much of what's um, beautiful beautiful about life is. Um, you know, the space where you don't have to know. Because we have this, you know, innate desire to know everything. Um, and like just making peace with not needing to know everything is, or ne not needing to be perpetually informed. Um, you know. So, yeah. Has that, think, increased? Sorry? Has that increased sort of as time goes on? Because, like, uh, you know, now of Google and like now of ChatGPT, especially, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I've got a question. You can immediately get the answer for it. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I, I, yeah. But the, the, the interesting thing is, it's not so much. I think, I think we've, um, I think what's happened is we've become unable to ask the interesting questions anymore. Just because, you know, we're not thinking as well as we used to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, with, with AI and everything else, I mean, God knows where that's going to play out because fundamentally we're not that special humans. We're not, we're not that useful. <laughs> I'm so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's not a good idea, I don't think, to um, to allow something to be able to perpetually outthink us. We're not that bright. <laughs> it's, um... Yeah, there's way too many films we've seen. Man. I don't know who's developing these, yeah, but they need to watch like Terminator a few times, I think. Yeah, yes, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, um, that, I mean, fundamentally, we need more jobs, not less jobs at the moment. There's a lot of idle hands <laughs> and... Uh, and the one thing that, uh, if anything, the last 200 years of industrialization have taught us is that, you know, with the advancement of technology, generally doesn't improve things for most people. <laughs> it does improve things for some people. Uh, we might get more free time, but uh, in terms of general happiness levels, uh, I don't think any advancement in tech is going to make us any happier. Uh, I'd say the last probably... 25 years is probably tech has started to actually have the opposite effect on people's happiness yeah no of course i think when it comes to yeah monopolization you know technology i think some people at the top are quite willing to boot off the people at the bottom you know for the sake of that and um you know you see it i guess there's a um i forgot his name but he wrote this book called cobalt red and that um you know that book there and it's about the cobalt mines in congo and that that's just that's just insane it's just yeah pure slavery mining for cobalt um you know that we can use for phones cars. Oh look at any i mean i interestingly i once upon a time worked on a nickel refinery in western australia so i worked on a mine and slept underground and did all that sort of stuff um but yeah i mean like you look at you know you look at any great great you know, wealth, there'll be a great injustice just behind it. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drifting away from the mushrooms of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you look at anything and behind it, there is something terrible. Uh, where the, that's what I was saying earlier in terms of the fact that, um, you know, we've become very good at uh, extricating or maximizing profit without actually paying the cost of it uh especially in terms of you know 
carbon or whatever else it may be and so um yeah we're, we're like we're running a heavy deficit to the earth at the moment and um to be naive enough to think that that doesn't is not going to cost us in the short term or medium term or long term uh yeah it's a little naive but um yeah and i just think you know there are potential applications for mushrooms to maybe remedy some of this but for example in one of paul stamets's books he wrote about um using the spent substrate from uh, mushroom farms to clean the rivers and waterways because mushrooms are quite good at taking out or isolating heavy metals and nitrates and phosphates and stuff um, which is, that is true mushrooms are good at taking that stuff out and we did a, a little uh, project here um, and used our spent substrate put a fixed amount of mpk in and put it through six different um, six different 50 litre tanks with spent substrate in and none of them apart from the freshly impregnated one took anything out so we're actually doing a, a project later this year with arab uh, it's a civil engineering firm and uh, welsh water to create like a mycelial sort of matting outside a sewage plant to see if that does anything so they'll pour you know their overflow sewage will go through this mycelial bed before it goes into the river um but There's our actual research on, on, like, you know, cleaning, you know, water, and I guess progressing towards a more sustainable future with the mushrooms. Yeah, we the research we've done doesn't seem to make much difference. But Arup have obviously sold this project to Welsh Water, and have come to us for like technical advice and to make all the substrate to put there. And um, the interestingly, actually, what is interesting is the one mushroom that might be quite good for what they. That potentially is quite good at this is uh, something called a caramel cut which is actually a psychedelic mushroom which is a wood decomposer and because a lot of psychedelic mushrooms um grow off shit you know fundamentally they like high nitrogen and so um yeah we probably won't actually be able to use the best type of mushroom for the micromediation because of the fact that it's got some potential psychedelic where well, it's got a lot of psilocybin in it so um, it's kind of ironic how you know, we won't actually be able to use the best mushroom just because it's got certain compounds in it that um, can make you see experience things in a different way. Yeah, that, that is that is quite strange. But I actually didn't know about this about how you can you know use uh, mycelium mushrooms to you know progress towards cleaner water. It really is yeah well, crazy stuff. They're using uh, um, I can't remember what type of mushroom it is, but yeah, to try and get to isolate gold out of rock. So they actually, you know, um, with exactly the same as they do with lead and stuff in terms of they uh, pull it into the fruiting body, you know, they could potentially, people are trying to do it with you know, gold and various other things. Because mushrooms are actually quite biddable. They're quite easy to train on um, agar. You know, you can strain select based on, you know, just simply putting something on agar and, and teaching it to eat that food. Like at Chernobyl, there's... I think there's four different types of fungi that are now growing within the um, the actual um, big lump of concrete they put over the top of it, and they're all using um, the um, radioactive the radio waves as energy sources. Although they're obviously um, radioactive, so yeah, fungi are pretty good at doing all sorts of things. 
I was going to say, yeah, just um, from reading, I think, Entangled Life, there's, you know, they're extremophiles. They can they can live in so many different environments. You know, you send like lichen to space, you dehydrate it and you send it back, you know, ages later and then rehydrate it and it's back to normal. So I'm not surprised. I didn't hear about it, but I'm not surprised that, well, you know, you can go to Chernobyl. Thors can definitely survive in space without any issue. You don't have to do it. They, they're absolutely fine. And they found some spores that were 20, year, 20 million years old. Uh, when they did, the Japanese did when they did, were doing some drilling in Antarctica, and they actually managed to fruit those those mushrooms twenty million years later, and so I mean, that's a very long period of time, and that's that's why there is that whole theory that life on Earth, I think it's called uh, plasmodia. Is it, no, yeah, plasmodia, something like that. Um, the idea that basically an asteroid came bringing fungal spores, and they were actually the the basis for life on Earth, which is not actually too far-fetched because we know that spores can survive for a very long period of time um, and can survive in space as well. So it's not completely implausible, but um, it's still quite unlikely. Yeah, I heard something similar. I, I heard that there was an asteroid and it contained, it was quite recent, I think. It may have been Australia 2011. I could be wrong, but it contained ribose and ribose you know is necessary for dna it's, it's necessary for all life so that that landed there and it kind of yeah brought the idea of maybe an asteroid came in and you know started life whether it's a spore or um through ribose so i don't know that's quite a cool quite a cool thing to think about so technically humans could be you know aliens on this earth not yeah so well, that's, I mean, quite, that's quite a weird thing but you know it's almost i'm um, it's completely unlikely that you know we are the only people, or the only the only you know intelligent life. And, I mean, it's just the universe is so vast. You know, there's it's almost certain that there'd be other life out there. Um, yeah, we're talking about space, though. I mean, spores in space isn't that quite a concern because with you know Elon Musk and NASA we're, we're sending more and more things out of space if we have spores contaminating those things you know the spaceships or satellites we're sending out there if they have spores on it can that can that infect like you know if we send that to certain places or what um contaminate certain areas what's the like um mushrooms probably came into being about 1.3 million years ago 1.3 billion sorry um, and for the first maybe 300 million years on Earth, there was only, the only kingdom was the fungi kingdom. Then there were bacteria and viruses and that was it. Um, the amount of time it would take fungi to, you know, learn to break down whatever it may be, is a very, 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 very long period of time. You're talking millions of years. And bear in mind that Homo sapiens sapiens have only been around for... You know, Best case, maybe 1.2 million years, more like sort of in our current form, maybe, you know, well, in our current form, you know, we've all got decimal, well, we don't all have decimal, but some of us have decimal in DNA, some of us have, you know, Florian DNA, some of us have, uh, well, in Northern Europe, we've got what, on average, is it 2% um, uh, Neanderthal DNA? So, you know, in our current form, we've only been around for a few hundred thousand years. So, you know, you don't need to worry in terms of, what's relevant to humans and what's relevant to actual life on earth are two very different things where you know we've only been yeah evolutions yeah it's a very strange one it's yeah it's always been fascinating especially as someone that does you know biology 
but um, you know, yeah, never know. See, we'll have to see how uh, humans. Yeah, You'll never know. I think it's your yeah. your children aren't going to be around. You're growing, you know, you're talking so thousands of generations after you, um, and the chances of us still being around in thousands of generations is, you know, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe you know, evolve alongside fungi. Who knows? It'll, uh, can't predict it. The reason we've got you know enzymes in our tummy is because uh, fungi developed enzymes that they exude out of there. Hyphal nodes. Um, the reason we exhale CO2 is because fungi exhale CO2. We're in that direct lineage of fungi. So. Yeah, on the tree of life. Yeah, you see, so you got, you know, uh, plants, because people see plants, they see fungi, and it almost like they look somewhat similar. They're on the floor, they're sessile, they're just growing out the ground. But you look at the tree of life, you've got plants going one direction and another direction, you've got fungi, and then off that is every animal to have ever existed. So yeah. humans are closer to fungi than they are plants. Any animal ever is well, close to fungi. Yeah, well, the first kingdom on earth was fungi, so you could argue everything comes from fungi. The first, the first plants had no roots; they had mycorrhizal relationships with uh, fungi. So you know, and there's still quite a few. But there's not that many. There's a few hundred um, plants that have relationships with fungi, and that's it. There's a lot of plants that have relationships with trees so there's those ones that are popping up at the moment called the ghosts something i don't know what they're called um what are they called but they're popping up in woods all over the place now these white flowers that pop up uh, and they have no leaves they don't photosynthesize and so um yeah without fungi there would be yeah there wouldn't be anything so um yeah there wouldn't be us there wouldn't be plants there wouldn't be there wouldn't be any soil there wouldn't be yeah i mean there literally wouldn't be anything so uh yeah they're quite they're kind of important i mean they're instructive in terms of um you know they've managed to survive for 1.2 billion years they're going to survive way beyond us and so um yeah we don't need to worry too much about fungi yeah of course yeah i think (laughs) the the fact they grows everywhere you know yeah i'm not surprised they're the first kingdom and above, above your head if you'd like uh if there was a column above your head there would be about three billion spores going up to the stratosphere above your head so you're breathing in spores with every breath you take you know it's like yeah i mean it's just it's a fact of life we are yeah. everywhere i actually read that on average there's about ten thousand spores that land on at one leaf a day yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, it's such a primary, such a basic way of reproduction, just creating, you know, colossal quantities. I think reishi or, uh, or any of the Ganodermas that you see in the woods, I mean, they can release billions of spores every single day just from one of these um, conks that you see growing. And so, I mean, it's a very low success rate way of, you know, reproducing we got much better like the plant kingdom got much better the animal kingdom got much better um but the fungi kingdom fundamentally you know they just play a numbers game and uh but yeah and in terms of you know the sort of sex side of fungi there's um in order to protect the sort of dna side they they release a huge variety of um fertile spores but just with a huge variety of genetic um disparity in them and so um yeah so some people have argued that that you know at the moment with this sort of desire to um 
view gender as a sort of loose um some uh, sort of the term that you can identify with individually a lot of people are looking at fungi and saying you know they're the sort of original um sort of queer um yeah the original sort of queer reproducers yeah it's a bit of an anthropomorphism in that the reason they do that is because it was very early on in the um sort of evolutionary tree and they haven't worked more worked out a more efficient and less wasteful of energy uh, approach to reproducing so yeah as ever you know we always try and make things uh, applicable to our current mindsets um which isn't necessarily always entirely true yeah you can definitely see that um yeah with humanity really i think there's a lot of cases where you know humans don't really live long enough to see the trends in humanity so yeah like you said they kind of yeah yeah read history and then you might find some some reality it doesn't have to be all about magic mushrooms and gods and everything else just read any history and um you know there's been lots of psychedelics taken by every pretty much every culture on earth ever not just mushrooms be it whatever it may be um and so the desire to connect is you know it's a human need and um yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why mushrooms are now very popular in the uh in the sort of um yeah in sort of society at large because mushrooms offer the ability to connect and therefore when people do take mushrooms they feel connected and i think there's this thing because they're natural as opposed to you know man-made people have some sort of affinity with you know thinking because it's natural it you know is inherently good or something i don't quite understand the logic but but it's, it's a nice idea that god put these things on earth to make you feel more connected to earth and when you take them you do feel more connected and i think what's interesting from a medicinal perspective is that a lot of these compounds that fungi have developed over millennia or wait over millions of years um because of where we sit in the uh, evolutionary tree a lot of these compounds our bodies can actually make use of um so in particular fungi beta glucanes uh, which because of their molecular structure, which is 1316, which means they spike off the third and sixth carbon atom, our human uh, immune receptor cells recognize that shape and can make use of them. There's quite a few others as well. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of, that's great because it's something that we haven't really made a huge amount of use of over the last few centuries. I mean, interesting, I was reading a book by uh, Culpepper, well, not by Culpepper, a biography of Culpepper, who's one of the original herbalists, in the sort of 15th century they were called um, apothecaries back then and one of the two um, tonics for the london plague the main ingredient was a, a, a mushroom called a garicon which is a type of ganoderma from the pacific northwest um the elixir and, of life isn't it nicknamed well i think i think that's what paul stamets might nickname yeah. it. <laughs> so but it's interesting how that mushroom was um a large constituent part of one of the two uh, London tonics that were given in the 16th century to people with the plague. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, you know, nothing's new really. Just people forget about things and then, um, you know, think that they're relearning them for the first time. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think now we've got, you know, the hunger for connection. That That's why we're on, you know, Google, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, you know, there's, there's definitely a, yeah, everyone wanted to connect. I think the pandemic showed that a lot as well. 
with uh, everyone kind of the difference is that people um people weren't connected and you know fundamentally we're not connected because you're in the you know we're physically not connected and i think um people lust after the physical connection we get some level of connection by this sort of 2d experience but it's um it's not quite the same yeah it's almost like tricking your brain somewhat thinking you're connected maybe that's why you know scrolling through social media kind of just you're know, hoping to be connected and obviously yeah right now yeah it's obviously done online so uncle but with a screen <laughs> yeah 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 it's definitely lacking lacking that actual human connection how humans evolved alongside yeah. you know you've got your context which is yeah yeah i can't smell you touch you no. or buy you a drink <laughs> so we're uh yeah, we're a few hundred years uh, out of date for what has worked previously in, in this in this culture in this country for the last thousand years. Of course, yeah. So your website is uh, Bristol Fungorium. Bristol Fungarium. Fungarium. Bristol Fungarium. Uh, if you want to uh, have a look at what we're doing, have a look there. I mean, it's it's like we're selling a lot of product now, um, which is great because we've spent we haven't spent any money now for over a year on like any social media advertising or anything like that so it's all been going through word of mouth which has been great and also other companies spending a huge amount of money on trying to sell their products that are not not quite as um robust should we say um so yeah it's been it's and like we, yeah i mean I'm, I'm quite cynical but some of the stories that people tell us are pretty extraordinary and so um it's quite amazing doing something where you genuinely have every week three or four people ring you up just being so thankful um because of changes that they've experienced um and so that's yeah although i sort of blase about it it is quite it's quite profound you know. yeah i can imagine it quite fulfilling you know especially getting yeah, you know, people yeah. genuinely you know, reaching out to you it's not it's not fake it's not doing it you know for exposure it's just genuinely reaching out to you and saying thank you so much but as i want but the fact is it is actually true for them you know and we have had some unbelievable stories like genuinely unbelievable stories about you know various different things that people have been suffering from and uh for decades sometimes and um and claim they no longer are <laughs> so um you know that's kind of amazing no it sounds great so all, all the stuff we've covered today not all but majority of stuff like lines main cordyceps etc that's all sold in extract form on uh, at bristol fungarium and uh lots of shops anywhere near you although we did just recently refuse to be stopped in holland and barrett so, um, yeah, you will never find us in Holland. <laughs> also, never find us on Amazon. So, we are a principled company. We're not on Amazon. We're not going to be in Holland, America, uh, which means that we're probably never going to be very well off. <laughs> but uh, such is life. That's fair enough. And the uh, the code, the affiliate link is George20. It's 20% off, isn't it? It's George20. Give, give, uh, give fantastic George. 20 ago there we go yeah 20% off uh, supports supports tom supports me and uh you know support me <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Me. yeah yeah 
so yeah everyone everyone benefits off it. it's a win-win-win that's what it is the win-win is like like some sort of mycelial happy space <laughs> yeah absolutely right tom it was great speaking to you and yeah thank you everyone for watching hope you enjoyed it uh give us a follow and i'll see you next time goodbye